five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. The old pilot's plane tails. Who was Joe Gilmore? And so Plain Tales was born, with the story of the mixologist Joe Gilmore. Well, kind of, as there had been a few bits in the shows pre the Farnborough special, but it hadn't become part of the show like it is now. The number of tales will never catch Jeff's impressive half-millennium of shows, but they have now passed the 300 mark, and these are a few of the more memorable ones. We start with a little from Tumbledown Dick about Farnborough and the nearby Odium Castle, the signing place of the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta, I'm sure you will know, was signed by King John under a certain amount of duress, and although substantially altered over the years, it eventually found its way into English law to form the foundation for the modern rights of Parliament. It is held in great respect by the British and American legal communities. Indeed, parts of the Constitution were derived from Magna Carta. So there, Yabu sucks. In and Avon over the Thames, Plain Tales revealed the story behind the famous hunter pilot who flew under Tower Bridge, the very bridge that Steph ran across only a few weeks ago. Bridges flashed underneath him as he swept round over Wandsworth, Battersea and Chelsea. Crossing Vauxhall Bridge, he saw his destination, the familiar and splendid Houses of Parliament. Banking hard and with full power, he started to circle Whitehall and the historic seat of the British government. With his Avon bellowing a mighty roar, he imagined how this would wake up the MPs and other august figures sitting chair-bound beneath him, hoping this might slow the dead hand of government and the sickening cutbacks that threatened the Air Force. Within the Commons chamber, the message was certainly received. Debates were interrupted as Pollock's lords and masters gazed upwards towards the ornate ceilings, wondering what the devil was going on. He circled Parliament three times, and as Big Ben struck twelve noon, he straightened up to head for home. Dipping his wings to the RAF monument, he skimmed over Waterloo Bridge, the wonderful silhouette of St Paul's Cathedral passing by as he concentrated on keeping low over the winding river when it suddenly appeared the matronly structure of Tower Bridge, there in his path. His mind whirred, but to a trained pilot familiar with low flying, this wasn't a difficult choice. He hastily jinked to line himself up, he only had seconds, and he slipped even lower over the water. There was considerable traffic on the bridge, amongst which was a bright red double-decker bus. With less than a mile to go, he gauged he could still fit through the small gap between the two spans and miss the bus. The steel girders seemed to explode about his cockpit, totally engulfing the canopy as he thundered through. For a heartbeat, he thought he had overcooked it and left his fin attached to one of Bazalgette's most famous structures, but then he was safely through. 
Please don't condemn or punish the daredevil pilot who swept across London. It did me and a lot of other people the world of good. I shall always remember the feeling of pride as I thought of that chap in control of so much power, and it revived memories of those wonderful fellows who during the war fought for our survival. K. Kakulum, Miss Daily Express. We are all aware of Sully's achievement in the miracle of the Hudson, but there was one who went before him, and in his time he was equally famous, Captain Richard Ogg, in the Sovereign of the Skies. As they considered their options, the aircraft made the decision for them. With something akin to disbelief, they watched their number four engine start to fail. The engine began to fade, and even with full throttle it was only producing partial power. It began to backfire, and eventually Og was forced to order it shut down and the prop feathered. Now their calculations were irrelevant. They were going to ditch. Back in the cabin, Pat got her crew to quietly wake those passengers still asleep before Og came through on the PA. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to wake you, but we have a real emergency. One of our engines is giving us some difficulty. Just in case we have to ditch the plane, please put on your life jackets, take your seats and fasten your seatbelts. The passengers woke from their dreams to find themselves in a nightmare, one that was going to last nearly five hours. Og's skill in ditching the Stratocruiser in the open ocean was considered a fabulous display of airmanship, but the story also revealed that the American accent was always going to elude me. Their calm and efficient control of the situation averted what could have been a major disaster. All on the aircraft had survived the ditching. Indeed, there were only a few minor injuries. However, in a moment of reflection, he mentioned to his wife that his only real regret was to have lost all the animals in the hole. Many of our flying heroes have passed on, but this man rose head and shoulders above most. There aren't many men who could call such great aviators as Orville Wright, Eddie Rickenbacker, Charles Lindbergh, Jimmy Doolittle, Chuck Yeager, Jacqueline Cochran, Neil Armstrong and Yuri Gagarin as their friends. Certainly, someone who was described by Jimmy Doolittle as the greatest stick-and-rudder man who ever lived should need a little introduction. The man is Bob Hoover, a fighter pilot, USAF test pilot and airshow pilot, and it is very fitting that he should have received such a compliment as when Bob was a youngster, Doolittle was his idol. Other tributes to him are equally fine. Chuck Yeager called him the greatest pilot he had ever seen and a magician in the cockpit. Astronaut Wally Shearer described him as the finest aerobatic pilot we've seen in our lifetime. Of course, not every story was one of celebration, some had a dark and worrying side, even though many ended happily, as in the case of Captain Lancaster. 
They had been airborne less than a quarter of an hour and passing 17,000 feet when Nigel Ogden checked on the pilots to ask if they would like a nice cup of tea. As he turned to leave, there was a noise like a bomb going off. Looking back, he saw that the front windshield had blown out and the captain had been sucked out of his seat and was hanging half out of the aircraft. The BAC-111 was suffering from an explosive decompression and everything was flying forwards out of the hole past the body of the captain. Paperwork, checklists, manuals, a fire extinguisher and the air was swirling with the mist that forms when pressure drops. Before he had completely disappeared through the window and fallen to his death, Nigel Ogden grabbed Lancaster's belt and hung on for grim death. The captain's body had started to slip downwards, and he was now pinned to the outside of the side windows. They could all see his head being viciously banged against the side of the aircraft again and again, blood splattering from the limp body. Just inches away was his dead, empty stare. Other stories, despite their potential for disaster, gave us some comic black humour. In the phantom cockpit, everything looked as it should. Missile lights glowed, just as they always did. The selected Sidewinder missile had started to growl as the seeker saw the glowing jet pipes of the Jaguar bomber ahead. The navigator called the range as the target tracked down the scope. Approaching a mile, the pilot ran through his attack checks, his procedural memory taking control, and, as he was trained to do, put the master arm switch on. The navigator turned on his radar camera to record the kill and called one mile. I try to imagine what it felt like for the crew when, at that fateful moment, the pilot pulled the trigger and heard the entirely unexpected thunder of the winder coming off the rails. The almost paralysing shock and realisation of what had just happened. It certainly didn't take long to play out. The missile accelerated to over Mach 2 in its own length and headed unerringly towards its target. There was no stopping it, no way to turn something off or make it self-destruct. In desperation, the pilot shouted over the radio, Jaguar over Germany, eject! And yet others have tugged at our heartstrings, like the story of Major Bung Lee and his flight from South Vietnam after the fall of Saigon. He had crammed his family into a tiny aircraft and flown out over the ocean in desperation, looking for the remote chance of salvation. The Major carefully lined his aircraft up on the angled deck, naturally accommodating the induced crosswind that his approach gave him. Nobody had ever tried this feat before, and certainly not in such desperate conditions. The little aircraft approached quite slowly, close to the stalling speed, and they could all see that it was being buffeted by the turbulence the ship created. Avoiding the deadly effects of the fantail, in a stroke of masterful flying, the Major touched down as if he had done it a thousand times, right on the centre line, in line with the three-wire, the perfect spot. 
The plane bounced once, and then the crew rushed forwards to grab the wingtips and drag it to a stop. The men of the midway whooped wildly as they rushed up to the aircraft. Major Bung Lee and his wife were embraced and welcomed aboard as strong American hands carried their children to safety. Captain Chambers ordered the bird dog to be secured on deck. He rightly felt that this tiny craft that had brought seven friends of America safely to the midway deserved saving. Indeed, it can still be seen at the Naval Aviation Museum in Pensacola. Quite early on in Plain Tales, I had the wonderful opportunity to record my father, now sadly passed away, talking about his life in aviation. Uh, learning a new language as we tried to do, um, there were a lot of traps that you, you weren't perhaps aware of. And I suppose one of my most embarrassing moments was that after we'd been flying out of Berlin with the German hostesses for you know, a couple of months, we felt that we'd learned enough German to be able to talk to the passengers. But of course we hadn't learned enough German at all in that time. And grammatically we were pretty hopeless. So the German hostesses said, uh, yeah, that's is good, uh, providing uh, you tell us what you're going to say. And, uh, and if we think that's okay, then you may say it in German. So on this particular flight out of Frankfurt to Berlin, um, I did that. I called the girl up and said, uh, this is what I'd like to say. And she said, yeah, that's is, that's is good, mein Flugzeugführer. They used to call the captains the Flugzeug, aeroplane, Führer, captain. So, yeah, that's is good, mein Flugzeugführer. So I picked up the mic and said in my halting German, Guten Morgen, mein Damen und Herren. Wir sind fliegen über das Flusselbe und so weiter. And I, I carried on and, and I told them we were getting into Berlin 10 minutes early. Now that was okay, except that when I'd hung up the mic, I found, I realized I hadn't told them why we were getting in 10 minutes early. So instead of going through that palaver again, I just picked up the mic and I translated literally, mein Damen und Herren, wir haben ein sehr stark Wind. Now, to say that you have a very strong tailwind in German is one of the most disgusting things you can possibly say. <laughs> and the red-faced first hostess burst into the flight deck, screaming, Nein, nein, nein! <laughs> Over the years, I've had much help producing the tales. On this clip, it was Hillel who provided the voice of a salesman, pitching Cessna's much-vaunted qualities. An advertisement in the Time magazine claimed, New Cessna 172 makes flying like driving. It's true, you can learn to fly the amazing new Cessna 172 into the sky, back down to the ground, thanks to Cessna's patented landomatic gear. The exciting Cessna 172 makes the convenience, speed, flexibility of flying practical for you because you can fly it yourself. Save on travel costs. 
takes you where you want to go when you want to go. Only $8,750, the complete air fleet for every business need. And who could ever forget Greg Willett's poignant reading of Lieutenant Robert Toner's diary, found decades after his death, as he and his comrades desperately tried to walk out of the Sahara Desert after abandoning their liberator during the Second World War. Saturday, April 10th, 1943. Still having prayer meetings for help. No sign of anything. A couple of birds. Good wind from north. Really weak now. Can't walk. Pain's all over. Still all want to die. Night's very cold. No sleep. Sunday, 11. Still waiting for help. Still praying. Eyes bad. Lost all our weight. Aching all over. Could make it if we had water. Just enough left to put our tongues to. Have hope for help very soon. No rest. Still same place. The final entry was made on Monday, April the 12th. Written in thick pencil lines. No help yet. Very cold night. With the holiday season almost upon us, I'm going to leave you now with a few of the Christmas specials. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. The power plant was still working within limits and the aircraft was (laughs) displayed serviceable. No, declared serviceable. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. 172 also hit the headlights in headlights. No, it didn't. Dashing through the snow. He was flying a B-17F Flying Fortress. Trish or Fortress. In a one-horse open sleigh. When a wing creates lift, it causes a pressure differential. At RAF Coningsby in Lincolnshire. The English country that saw so many county, not country, twit.